0: Just before you start listening to this podcast, a reminder that we have a special subscription offer. You can get 12 issues of The Spectator for £12, as well as a £20 Amazon voucher. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher if you'd like to get this offer. Hello and welcome to The Spectator's Books podcast. I'm Sam Leith, the literary editor of The Spectator. This week we're going to be talking about one of the great Manhattan intellectuals of the second half of the 20th century. I'm joined by Benjamin Moser, whose new book is Sontag, Her Life. Benjamin, welcome. To start with, what was it that got you onto Sontag? I mean, your previous book was about Clarice Lispector. Why did you think, right, Sontag's the one to do now? Did you approach the estate? Because it's authorised, isn't it? Well,
1: no. I mean, it isn't. It isn't. I'm actually the authorized biographer, but it's not the authorized biography. This is you, quite a distinction. It's a quite. A, it's quite a distinction. And are the, you going to write the authorized biography? No. Yeah, I think this is. You know, it's 700 pages. I think I've had my say on this subject now. I was approached by the estate actually after the Clarissa Spector book, Why This World, came out. It's now been 10 years. Shockingly, they asked me because they thought that it was a good book about, as they said, a a female intellectual in an international context. So in other words, someone who would not only be able to write about America, but also about her experiences, mainly in Europe, but really all over the world, in the case of Sontag. And I had no idea that I was going to become a biographer. I didn't really set out to do that. But once you get asked to do something like Susan Sontag, there's only one answer. So here I am.
0: Did you ever come across her? I mean, did you meet her?
1: Never, never, never. I could have, you know, I lived in New York in when she did and she was a very visible person. You know, she always went to every gallery opening and every movie and every museum and you know, she was always around and a lot of people one of the fun things that everybody in New York will always tell you when you interview them and I interviewed almost 600 people was the first time they saw Susan. And it's always a moment. It was like seeing the Statue of Liberty or something. It's like you've actually arrived in New York and there she is with the white streak in her hair. And people always tell you that.
0: There's a lovely detail in the book that Saturday Night Live actually had a Susan Sontag wig. (laughs) In the
1: permanent collection, whatever it's called, the costume department, had a wig with the black streak, I mean, the white streak and the black hair. And it was one of the most famous hairstyles ever. And it's very rare to have a hairstyle that you can actually remove the face from and still know who it is. And she had one of those, just like Elvis or, or... Andy Warhol, a few other people achieved that degree of hair celebrity and actually one of the hilarious moments of my research that I'm really proud of, it's not really one of the ones that is the most intellectually brilliant, but I actually located the hairdresser in Honolulu who gave her the original white streak, which is like a historic moment in the history of coiffure in America. She went to Hawaii after she had cancer for the first time in 1975. And her hair had stayed, you know, she didn't lose her hair like a lot of people do in chemo, but she, it all went white. And so her mother, who is this very vain, appearance-oriented woman, said she's always trying to get her dress better and put on makeup and put on lipstick and do her hair better. And she sent her to her hairdresser. And he did this thing. And it probably took, you know, how long does it take to dye your hair? You know, half an hour or something. And it became this famous thing, and I found this guy, and he told me about this historic day, and it was really fun. Because with Sontag, what you get is a lot of the really high-level intellectual, philosophical stuff, but you also get this figure who was so famous in a way that no intellectual who wrote about, like, Nathalie Sarut or whoever, these people in my country do not end up on the cover of Vanity Fair ever. There's no, nobody ever became as famous as she was doing the kind of things that she did, which
0: was writing this very difficult philosophical essays. Why do you think that happened? I mean, was it a kind of historical moment? Or was it something that she consciously shaped? I think both. I think you can try to shape these things. And a lot of people
1: do. They come and they have their big ideas, and they arrive in the big city. And nobody ever had done it the way she had done it before. Nobody had ever become that influential in America. And I think a lot of it has to do with the fact that she was gay and she wrote about that even though it was in disguised terms. Uh, Her essay of 1963, Notes on Camp, was seen as a signal for sexual liberation and not just gay liberation, but for an embrace of new forms of Sexuality and and ways of living in a time where America was triumphant. We were by far the richest country in the world and uh, unquestionably powerful and optimistic, and Hitler had been defeated, and all of the liberationist movements were coming up, whether they were feminist or black or eventually gay. It was really a hopeful time. And that very so that essay comes out in that year that's the same year that it. Goes horribly wrong, first with the murder of John F. Kennedy, and then even more scarringly with the Vietnam War. And so she was there right at that moment when everybody was looking for a new way to go about things.
0: And Notes on Camp is the sort of, it remains kind of the almost keystone thing by which she's she's remembered. But it's quite a sort of strange essay, isn't it, to have had that impact? Because in some ways, you know, I mean, one of the charges that's often made against Sontag, and I think that's sort of true about that essay, is that a lot of camp is funny. It's to do with humor. And the main line of attack on Sontag has always been, she didn't have a sense of humor. Is that a fair line of attack, do you think? It depends when and where you're
1: looking at her. I mean, I think Notes on Camp is hilarious. And Notes on Camp is still funny and it's still effective because it shows how she can put all these things next to each other. Like she has John Ruskin, and then she has Mae West. You know, she has much of Mozart, as she says, which she puts into the camp category, alongside, you know, Andy Warhol or Oscar Wilde. And it's kind of, it's a fun thing to read, but it's also something that I was really excited when I was in the archive working on the book to find the original draft of this manuscript. And it was a lot of years before and it was the original title was I knew it in the way that you kind of feel that this has got to be out there somewhere. Um, The original title was notes on homosexuality and which of course she changes because in those times you couldn't even be that explicit about something and it was shocking to people and it was people loved it in a way that I mean I don't know I can't think of something that would have happened in the last few years uh, in an obscure literary magazine where everybody would be writing passionate letters to the editor. And, and the letters to the editor are hilarious. I mean, there's a lot of people who are really excited about this revolution that's happening, and a lot of people who are saying that this is the end of our country if, if people start embracing camp. So people took this really seriously. And you had, like, this long essay in the New York Times magazine. It was, like, 14 pages with all these pictures of examples of what was camp and what was not. And they quoted all these very serious psychiatrists about it. And, and, you know, really,
0: like, they really took it seriously. So Sontag, you know, sometimes she... Like the famous Nancy Mitford essay, You and Non-You. You You know, that were like, what's you? What's not you Well,
1: those things happen every generation, maybe. And it's funny to kind of think about why. And some people manage to keep that reputation going. She did, Sontag did. But others don't. Others just have their moment on Twitter and then it's over. And I think that I think Sontag's sense of humor, she didn't like that about America, certainly didn't like it about Britain. The glibness, the irony, the ha-ha, she thought that was trash, basically. She thought that people needed to be serious. She thought people needed to take things seriously and actually go read Dante. And we don't have many figures like that in our culture. We have figures that encourage us to relax. There's a great line when she meets Thomas Mann when she's 16 in California. And she says, He was the first person I ever met who didn't affect being relaxed. And it's such a relief as an American to meet people who aren't that relaxed. And then she quotes later in uh, one of her essays of the 70s, she quotes Elias Canetti saying, I try to imagine someone saying to Shakespeare, Relax. <laughs> and, and it just, I love that quote. Because it's so, um, it's genuinely countercultural. Our culture is about faking your way through a bunch of bullshit and sort of trying to appear smooth and all put together and not too worried about stuff. And that's not the reality of most people's lives.
0: Yeah. And Sontag was very unrelaxed uh, through her life. I mean, yeah. <laughs> can you start? I mean, you know, she wasn't Susan Sontag. You know, as you said, she, she's a sort of creation, a self creation. She started Susan Rosenblatt. Can you talk a bit about how her childhood and her relationship with her family shaped her? Because that's certainly something that seems to come through in the book.
1: Well, I think that's fascinating because she's a girl who comes from basically a single mother. Her father dies in China when she's five years old. He was a fur trader. And she grows up with this alcoholic single mother who was very beautiful and very vain. And whenever anything got uncomfortable, she would take her vodka and she would go into her room and just not come out. And that was the girl... That was a mother that this girl had to create herself in, and she grew up in these provinces where she didn't have family or relatives or role models. And so what she finds are the great divas, which was very common, I think, in that era, that people would measure themselves against Hollywood particularly, especially when they moved to Los Angeles when she's in her early teens. Hollywood, which in her mother's time was something that was just starting, was already this enormous industry. So who does she find? She finds these figures in books, the great women, whether they're- Marie Curie,
0: kind of Well, Marie Curie early, is a fascinating figure because she's model.
1: the only role model. I read this in Carolyn Heilbronn's book, Writing a Woman's Life, which is an excellent little essay. It's about 80 pages long, about women and biography. That in fact, in that generation, Marie Curie was the only role model that intellectual girls had, and they all read that book that was written by her daughter, and so did Susan, and you really feel how far we've come in a certain way that there's so many options now for girls to, to mirror themselves on, but she didn't have that, so she had her, but she also had the great she she was, she was a lover of divas. She writes in all her work. Once you start noticing it, you see them in every piece. Medea, or Joan of Arc, or, or um, Sarah Bernhardt, Greta Garbo, who's a great role model for lesbians, which I didn't even know that Greta Garbo was a lesbian until I started this book. But now I know a lot about that subject. And there's a kind of genealogy that goes down, you know, through Greta Garbo and and Joan Crawford and then the next figure in America is Susan Sontag and she deliberately creates herself as this larger than life figure in order to mask what she calls Sue which is this girl this unprotected girl with no parents who's basically raising herself in the middle of nowhere and um, I found that really touching because the performance of Susan Sontag was incredibly
0: effective and really inspiring to a lot of people. Yeah. How important? I mean, she, you, you mentioned earlier that her, you know, she liked being called Sontag, which is her mother's subsequent husband. She took his name because she didn't like her Jewish name. I mean, what was her relationship to her Jewishness?
1: Well, this is something I always like to explain outside of New York, which is that Jewishness in America is not that conflicted an identity. It's not, especially in New York, again, and especially in intellectual New York, it's not really a minority, I mean, I don't know how many. Is there 2 million Jews or something in the city of New York? So it's not really that unusual. She didn't like the name Rosenblatt. She thought it sounded foreign. She doesn't say it sounds Jewish. She says it sounds foreign. And the name Susan Sontag just sounds a lot better than Susan Rosenblatt. You wonder if Susan Rosenblatt would have become as, as influential as Susan Sontag. You know, it sounds like the name of a professor. Susan Sontag sounds like a star. But maybe that's just afterwards, you know, because we know who she was. But where I think she was really conflicted was about her gay identity, which was an identity that was not stable at the time. I mean, being Jewish is, you know, it's basically there's persecution and there's history, The moments where it's not okay to be Jewish, but being Jewish is basically one thing, whereas being gay was something that didn't even exist in the culture.
0: But she was so protective of it, and it's odd when she was so kind of purposely... And bravely sort of transgressed in other ways. You know, I mean, she'd swim against the intellectual current of her time and against interpretation. She'd mix up high culture and low culture in ways that, as you said in notes on camp, were kind of really shocking to people. But that, you know, why was she so closeted with regards to her sexuality?
1: Well, so she grew up in a world that it's really hard for us to even imagine, that someone told me that old ladies didn't know that Liberace was gay. You know, it just wasn't something that people registered. And you didn't even know that this was a possibility for yourself. And she grew up in a completely closeted world. And then she comes in, she, she's married to a man, has a baby when she's 19. And then she struggles to free herself from that and come into the adult world that she wants to inhabit, including the gay uh, world. And she, I think, never quite, I think for a lot of us, anybody, it's very hard to shed the attitudes we grow up with. If you come from a certain time, you come from a certain culture, you come from a certain country, you come from a certain language, you can learn other languages, but you'll always have an accent, you know? And so she knew that, she tried. But I think that that she was always in herself from a time and a place where, for example, a lesbian having, in a novel, The Price of Salt by Patricia Highsmith, for example, a lesbian who lost her child but wasn't killed at the end of a book, that was considered a a positive ending, you know? And that wasn't abstract for her. She read that book at a time when she was in a custody fight with her ex-husband over her child. And until the 1990s in the United States, um, homosexuality was grounds for taking away people's children. And you could lose your job, you could lose your family, you could become a pariah. I mean, I think it's really, it changed really quickly.
0: And I mean, that, when that did change, though, she stayed sort of... I mean, even her, her last relationship with Annie Leibovitz, which I'm sure we'll move on to, but she still didn't kind of come out, did she?
1: No, she didn't. And, but I think, again, if you grow up in a certain place and time, by the time she met Annie Leibovitz, she was in her 50s, late 50s. So, you know, that's quite a long time to have lived in the world and, and, and fear that maybe this is something that puts you in danger. And, um, yeah, I mean, she never did. And she was deeply criticized for it. And in the book, I try to trace the history of these attitudes and how they evolve and how quickly they evolve. And the real drama that happens, that forces everybody out of the closet, whether they want to be in the closet or not, is AIDS, which eventually killed 40 million people and counting every day. Um, and all these people at first were mainly gay men and, All these people also often were not out of the closet. They might have been married. They might not have talked about this to their families or to their parents. And all of a sudden, they're forced, just like the Jews in Germany were forced to wear a a yellow star. They were forced to wear this badge of shame because it was a disease of sexual shame, which is a great theme in Sontag's work. Well, illness is metaphor and then AIDS is metaphor, isn't it? Well, illness is metaphor is about cancer, which I didn't know also was also a disease of shame it was considered a disease that you got if you were sexually oppressed and you weren't fun and you didn't really live. I mean, really you read these things and you think I never heard this. Like I was born in the year after Susan got cancer. So I was born in 76 and um, I grew up in a world where I never, I thought cancer was something you got. You could be guilty, you know, might be you smoked or you like you lived, worked in a coal mine or whatever. I mean, there were an understanding of that, but it wasn't a moral thing. It wasn't about, you're not being able to live and AIDS replaces that four or five years later and it becomes a disease that labels homosexuals and kills them in a brutal miserable way and then it changes and then there becomes this analysis that in order for gay people to have equality and have dignity you have to show your face because if you don't you perpetuate the shame you perpetuate the closet and that was a very very violent and very fast revolution in how people were perceived, and how people perceived themselves, and for a lot of reasons that I go into in the book, Sontag was not able to follow that as as
0: quickly as she probably should have. Yeah, but she did engage with it in that essay. How much was she shaped in, in those essays? Was she sort of shaped by Foucault when writing? Well, she didn't. I mean, she didn't like a lot of the
1: postmodernists. I mean, she was somebody who, who like me in parentheses was very shaped and educated in french and in french culture not so much in anglo-american culture and, she didn't uh, like
0: her time in oxford did she she didn't
1: like her time in oxford it was too cold and they didn't have any heating and 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 that would be a fun thing all these things that have changed so radically you know whether it's illness or, or aids or homosexuality the idea of britain you know for americans has changed 100 percent. i mean we used to come here in those times for 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 nights of the crusades and stuff and because this was a really poor, crappy-looking country for us when I was a child, it was cold. It was terrible. You know, there was nothing except culture and history. And then this tsunami of money washed through London.
0: Central heating.
1: Central heating. No, but I mean, no. But London is so much more posh than New York by now that you can't even remember. I don't think people in their twenties can remember that that Britain was was
0: threadbare. You mention this issue she had with photography, you know, obviously one of the big themes of her writing. I mean, how extraordinary that she ends up in a relationship with Annie Leibovitz. I mean, how do you think that plays out? I mean, is, is that just a sort of pure happy irony? I mean, the, you know, Annie's photographs of her, post-mortem, among other yeah. things, and their relationship sounds to have been very... It's almost, you know, reading a book, that's sort of like... Wow, she was taking out her disapproval of photography on the great photographer of the age in person. Physically, it's unbelievable. There's a lot about
1: Sontag that as a biographer, I'm really glad that I actually have the documents and the verifiable facts to back it up. Because if I were a novelist and I put that in there, it would sound ridiculous. Like It would be like, no. Like She's been writing about photography all her life and now she's going to end up in this conflicted relationship with the most f- famous photographer in the world, you, you sort of wouldn't make it up. I mean, the other, you know, she she's everywhere, and and she walks out of a movie theater in Berlin, and she smells tear gas, and they say, "Oh, the Berlin Wall has just fallen," you know. And it's like you wouldn't, if you were a novelist, you wouldn't dare put that in there because this is this woman who's famously everywhere all the time, and oops, there she is. It's like they waited for her to finish her film before she walks out the door, <laughs> and like they decided that East German guards would let everybody through Sontag's relationship with Annie is fascinating because it does mirror all these things. And it also as a biographer, it's a real challenge because it is a very conflicted relationship. It was the conflicts were played out in public among two world famous people. So everybody noticed, everybody remembered everybody thought, I can't believe she just said that. And then they told 50 people so it was really funny because it's, you wouldn't really
0: make it up. Why was she so cruel to her? Do you have a sense of that? Because it does um, sound, I mean, your account of it, Annie's desperate to please Susan, and Susan is pretty horrible to Annie in public most of the time. For years and years in
1: public. I think for a biographer it's really hard to find that kind of relationship because it's hard to know what to think about it, and it sort of demands a position I wonder if they had been heterosexual, how I would have written about it. I think that if Susan had been a man treating a woman the way she treated Annie, I think that that would be very problematic in a way that when it's two women, you know, it would, it would, it would just be too easy to put that into a gender template and say, this is a terrible man being mean to this nice woman. Annie Leibovitz is not a pushover. I mean, I've met her. She's not a weak, wet noodle of a human being. I mean, she's somebody who's been at the very top of her profession for 50 years. And it's a tough profession to stay at the top of. I had to figure out why were these things happening over and over again. And finally, when I was I was in Paris, walking down the street, after thinking about this, thinking about this for years, like what was actually going on there? And really trying to figure it out, because it's not easy. I got a phone call from one of her co or one of her colleagues, Annie's who said, she'd like to see you tomorrow. And I said, okay, great. I said, what time, where? She said, maybe come about 2, 2.15. I said, okay, where? She said, you know, it's uh, 14th Street and 8th Avenue. And I said, I looked around at the stone monuments of Paris, and I thought, okay, you know, I'll, I'll come. And um, I got on a plane, and I went to New York for one day, which is doable, I've, I learned. I didn't realize you could do that, but you actually... You go, you do your thing, you come back. And I talked to Annie about it. And that sort, of, sort of This is the anime, first time you've got to talk to Annie. The first it? time, because she's never spoken about her relationship before. And she is someone who's very, because she's been so public and so famous for so long, she has a real line between what she talks about and what she doesn't talk about. She'll talk about her new show at the gallery. She doesn't talk about her personal life. She doesn't talk about her children. She doesn't talk about stuff like that, which I completely respect. And so I always wanted, so I thought, well, maybe she's just not going to talk to me. But she was aware of a lot of the rumors and a lot of the things that were being said about her in relation to Susan, including that she had taken a lot of money from Susan, which was just completely not yeah, true. Like she'd need it. Oh, Annie was richer by a multiple of 100. I mean, compared, Susan was, a, you know, she was an author. She was well known, but she wasn't Danielle Steele. You know, she was someone who wrote difficult essays about modern art. You know, there's a limit to how rich you get off of that. Even if you're Susan Sontag and toward the end of my time with Annie, I said, I was kind of thinking about how to say this and how to, cause it's kind of have to say it, but it's a bit awkward, you know, I said, so Annie, you know, one thing I just really never understood was people have, have told me that she might've been a little mean to you or whatever. I don't know how I put it, but something like that. And I said, and Annie just laughed. She's like, ah, that was Susan you know, I just kind of let it go. She just did her thing. She's a great woman. I loved her. We had a great time together. And I thought, like, because sometimes when you're interviewing people for this kind of book, there's a lot of people who are trying to get in the book, first of all, because they, it's very important for them to look like Susan Sontag's best friend. So you get those people. Then you get the haters who just absolutely hate her and will tell you the most horrible things about her. And you sort of have to dismiss them. And then you have the well, you lovers. put the entertaining bits in the book. Sorry? But put the entertaining stories in the book. Yeah, but some of them are not true that you hear. And you get a sense, I think, as you do this work, you get a sense of who's lying to you because they kind of, there's patterns and who's, who's just trying to push themselves forward. And, but you get a real feeling, I don't know, it's sort of an emotional instinct maybe for when people are telling you the truth. And I just knew she was right. I just knew that she didn't mind. Like this is somebody who is herself famously difficult and who can get 12 of the most difficult actresses in Hollywood to line up exactly where she wants them at 6.15 a.m. with their jewelry and their hairdressers and their security guards and their things. And she moves them into the light where she wants them and they do exactly what she says. I mean, if you open those Vanity Fair spreads, you see what it is. And... So I thought, this is not a pushover, this woman. She actually thought Susan was a little bit too much, but she loved her. And you sense the emotional truth of that. And so that really helped me when I was writing about these very turbulent episodes to understand how someone might have not minded, just in the sense that, like, I wouldn't be able to have I mean, this physical stamina, for example, that Annie has is unbelievable. I mean, she is an unbelievably strong athletic woman who deals with the most difficult people in the world every day all day and she's fine some people can do that So
0: alpha enough not to mind
1: completely i mean and that's the thing that like she maybe took that role with with susan of the sort of submissive partner but it's very it's just i think as a biographer it's hard to you don't necessarily need to reach your judgment about other people's choices or their lives. The temptation is always there, and I think you just want to understand it and sort of put it as much as possible in their terms because people. Did are Did you
0: different. find yourself liking Susan at the end, though? I mean, it's you know you don't feel obliged to put that on the page, but I yeah. Well, what, what, how did your sense of her change as you were, were writing somebody
1: it? said to me, and this was something that wasn't said in these words, but that a lot of other people felt that you loved her but you didn't like her. And that's how I felt toward the end. I think that toward the end, she's sick, first of all. She has cancer twice. She's physically depleted. She's just faced all these difficult things in her life. And she's a little bit worn down. You really feel that. You you do see that there's an inflection in the personality, that she becomes more extreme. She becomes more intolerant of other people. It definitely, it wasn't always there. And so... I always, I'm very sympathetic to her. You know, I really, I understand when you write a biography, you, you think from that person's perspective and you're always trying to kind of check yourself and understand if your reactions are the reactions this other person who's not you might've had with the understanding that people are different. And it's, it's actually, it's fun in a way. It, it just is an emotional exercise to try to keep thinking like, why would she do that? Like, why is she saying that? Um, what's this relationship really about? And that does come to the fore with Annie and Susan, because uh, people throughout New York and throughout the world were scandalized by the treatment of her. And again, if it had been Norman Mailer treating his wife that way. As he did. Well, sometimes and sometimes, I mean, he stabbed one of his wives. So that's sort of, you know, it's hard to move past that. But, um, <laughs> but, 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 but you know, it's interesting that if this had been a heterosexual dynamic, I think we would be speaking and thinking about it very differently.
0: Do you think her work will last? And if so, which of it, which bits? Well, I hope so. I think I've spent
1: seven years on this, trying to rescue somebody from the wig in the Saturday Night Live department, you know, from notes on camp at the Met Gala, from these kind of very reductive, there's a few lines on Twitter, like, I haven't been everywhere, but it's on my list. And I think, you know, it comes by like 80 times a day somewhere in the world, somebody's tweeting that. And you know that if you've worked with history or writers or any of this kind of legacy work, that people get really quickly and easily forgotten. And you might be lucky if you get one sort of viral tweet. And Sontag's work is really broad. It's really challenging. It's really, it requires a different mindset because often it was written 50 or 60 years ago. And so you have to think, like, what does she mean by this word? Like, what is a woman Even that is not really a stable category. I mean, even biologically, with the trans movement that's become so visible in the last few years, you realize that even what you thought of as a woman at the most basic level, for some people, that might not be the full story. And I find that fascinating. And in every single category, from drug use to homosexuality, to the idea of America, to the idea of political democracy, to the idea of photography and, and modern art and metaphor... All these things are, they're not settled meanings. And I think we all over the world now are facing a complete meltdown
0: of what we thought the ideas were that we could count on. Do you find yourself tempted to do a sort of, what would Susan think of all this? What do you think? Oh, yeah, she'd everybody loved Instagram. Says that. Yeah, yeah, have, yeah, 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 yeah.
1: They were like, oh, today we're talking, someone's like, oh, I'd love to hear what she thinks about Trump.
0: And I thought, well, okay, first of
1: all, unfortunately, hate to break it to anyone. Not the first bad, guy who to ever occupy the White House, or just, you know, not the first time someone's had a bad politician to, to think about and be obsessed with. The cruelty, the corruption, all those things, the, the trashiness of Trump, which people think of as a snobby judgment if he has ugly furniture, but you see, as Susan would have said, that that aesthetics and politics are not actually separate as people like to think they are. That having ugly furniture sometimes can tell you a lot about somebody. There's a kind of, I think what you do when you, when you read Sontag is that you see that so many of these categories are completely applicable to today. I mean, people say, oh, I wonder what she'd think about social media. And, you know, I, I talked about Instagram a little bit. Instagram is just another form of photography. And photography, the debates that she, that you know, we're having now that she had in the 70s or the 80s, these were debates that people were being made uncomfortable by in the 1850s in the, the US Civil War in the 1860s, we had fake photographs that were staged and they would drag some bodies over the battlefield. Actually, it began earlier in Britain. It began in Crimea, with the first fake war photos. Staged things so that they could be consumed back in the metropolis for the newspapers. So actually, none of this is very new. And I feel like there's a... If you want to find it in Sontag, you can find it. And it's fascinating.
0: I mean, one of the things we haven't actually mentioned, and we're probably running out of time, but the fiction. Do you think it's any good? Because somewhere, I think, Sontag's quoted second, you know, she thinks of her, thought of herself as a novelist first of all. Well, Why was that which important? Which is another
1: category that's shifted. It's funny, because she thought of novelists as the great artists of, of literature, poets and novelists, and she thought essays and what we would call nonfiction, which is also a term I don't love. That, that was sort of inferior, and it was sort of journalistic, and it was kind of whatever. But she fantasized about being a novelist. That was her idea, is that she's going to be Thomas Mann, or she was going to be, you know, Dostoevsky or somebody. And of course, she's not Dostoevsky or or, or, or Tolstoy or any of these people. People also really, I got sick of people talking bad about her fiction, because her fiction is sort of good and sort of bad. Sometimes it's really good. Sometimes it's really bad. And actually, the same is about her essays. I mean, some of her essays, are not that good and some of them are really good and i think you're
0: very down on the one about the erotics of nazi memorabilia yeah she's blaming gay guys for
1: like (laughs) getting off to nazi uniforms and i thought that might if i were an editor i would suggest maybe an example or a footnote or something to (laughs) tell us what she's actually on about and it wasn't very clear she she did write some good stuff and she did write some bad stuff. And I think that's true of every writer. And I think whenever you have the opportunity to read everything someone wrote, it's kind of always fun. It's always kind of a slog because most people don't have the patience for it because not everybody has seven years to write a biography of Susan Sontag. But you see in, in the book about Clarice Lispector, the previous book, Why This World, she also she's seeking something, you know, she's not always finding it. And I think that that's something that any writer can sympathize with that you're moving past something maybe you need to like write this bad short story in order to reach the novel that's actually really good and maybe what's interesting for us now is not to see this imperfect unflawed soul but to see a mind and minds change and they are not always you know they're not always foolproof and I find that more interesting. I think, you know, there are, of course, there's artists, very rare, who always, who are sort of born fully formed.
0: Yeah. But you're, I rare. mean... But in the ups and downs of the fiction and nonfiction, I mean, you've said, or implied at least, that she thought of herself as a novelist, because that was the sort of high, it was a high status art. It was what she aspired to. But... Where do you think's the core of her achievement? You know, disregarding the bad stuff, disregarding anything, you know, what, what do you think carries forward? I think that forward? W- when you
1: look at Sontag now, we forget all the peaks and the, the valleys, and we just say, you know, who was she? I think what you see now and why she's fascinating just as a person, she is absolutely fascinating because of everything she did and everybody she slept with and everywhere she went and all that. But I think she's a key to culture. I think that if you read her in the way that I've read her and I've tried to inspire other people to read her in this book, you see the full range of modern culture and politics and sexuality and aesthetics kind of unfurl in front of you. And I think that the real achievement of Sontag is not to have been right about everything. I think that when you think about her, you often get irritated with her, you often disagree with her, you often don't like her. But like, you're always engaging with her and you're always trying to formulate ideas that might be either inspired by her positively or inspired by her in opposition and she's a she's a figure that provokes people to think and shows you how to think and that is again something that i don't know if we can be saved Educationally, You know, I, I don't know if there's an ideal of education and, and literary education that would be implementable on a national scale anywhere. But I think that if you yourself are interested in these things and trying to train your brain, she's, she's a key to, to understanding who we are.
0: Benjamin Moza, thank you very much. Thank you very much for listening. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and if you did we very much hope that you'll subscribe on your podcast provider of choice and or rate and review us. Well especially if you liked it, if you hated it, don't don't feel you have to review it. And equally if there's something that you wanted to ask us about, something you think we could do better or something you enjoyed, please do send us your feedback to podcast at spectator.co.uk. Thanks again for listening and please join us for our next episode.